Father, we know that in your sight every uh, life is precious, the old and the young. Um, and Lord, we pray for our children as they depart, that you would meet them by your Holy Spirit, that you would fill them with wisdom and insight into you and your ways. Would you fill their hearts with love for you? And same for us too, Lord, as we stay and listen to your word. Would our hearts be aflame with passion for you? Would it lead us uh, to uh, devote ourselves to you in worship and in prayer and in service, Lord? In Jesus' name, amen. So I want to begin today with a lesson on how to catch a monkey. Um, I have to confess that I myself am not an expert in this field. I have never actually caught a monkey. Um, but I did once hear about a reliable way to do it, and I wanted to share it with you. Uh, so what you do is this. You, you take a friend with you, and you go out into uh, the jungle where the monkeys live. And you find a clearing, and you take out a brightly colored rubber ball, like a big bouncy ball. And then you play with it. You and your friend play with the ball. You toss it back and forth. And you play loudly, you know, lots of laughing. Uh, and you show off the ball. Uh, and all the curious monkeys nearby are going to start watching you. So you do that for a few minutes, and then you leave. But before you leave, you place the ball inside a sealed box, like a box with a hole in the top that's just a little bit bigger than the ball itself, a box that's securely fastened to a nearby tree, so you drop the ball into that box, and then you leave. You and your friend go far away. Um, and as soon as the sound and smell of you have disappeared, down will come the monkeys to investigate. And clever as they are, one of them will slip his hand into the box to grab hold of the ball. But then he'll find that he can't get his hand out of the box again while he's still holding it. He'll pull harder, and he'll keep trying, but he'll be stuck. And believe it or not... When you and your friend come back half an hour later, that monkey will still be there. He'll allow you to just reach out and catch him because he refuses to let go of the ball. All he'd have to do is drop it and scamper up the nearest tree, but he won't. He finds himself a prisoner to this thing that he won't release. And I want to suggest to you this morning that we ourselves are alarmingly like those monkeys. Enough brains to grab hold of the ball, but not enough brains to let go of it when we need to. Time and time again, we make ourselves trapped and miserable for no other reason than we have taken hold of something, some object or asset or belief, and we refuse to let it go. And it ruins and even ends our lives. Now, I highly suspect that our enemy, the devil's favorite and most successful method of claiming souls for hell is basically the same way we catch monkeys. So, when Jesus of Nazareth stood up on a mountain 2,000 years ago to begin his mission to save the world, the first thing he had to do was to convince people to let the ball go. Drop it. Let it go. And be free and be happy. So we're going to look at Matthew chapter 5 today. We're beginning the Sermon on the Mount. You can turn there now, page 809 in the church Bibles. And I hope to show this to you from the text. It's probably not the first thing you thought of when you read Matthew chapter 5, but hopefully I'll be able to show you why this is the pattern. Page 809, Matthew chapter 5. So verse 1 begins, seeing the crowds, he went up on the mountain, and when he sat down, his disciples came to him, and he opened his mouth and taught them, saying, 
And then we get the first of five great sermons from Jesus that are recorded in Matthew's Gospel. We call this first one the Sermon on the Mount. And it begins with nine sayings that we call the Beatitudes. They all begin with the same word, the word blessed. Blessed in Latin is beatus. So that's where we get our name for the section, the Beatitudes. It's got nothing to do with your attitude. Um, So Jesus gave eight sayings in a row that have exactly the same formula. And then there's an extra one at the end that's similar but a bit different. The formula has three parts. Part one, blessed are. Part two, the recipient who gets the blessing. And part three, the reason. Why are they blessed? So the first example in verse three is, blessed are the poor in spirit for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And each of these sayings is marvelously deep and profound and could easily be a sermon all of its own. But today I just have one sermon uh, to cover all of them, and I just want to give you the big picture, the view from 30,000 feet. And I hope I might whet your appetite enough for you to want to do some further study on these awesome sayings. Today we're going to examine each part of that formula by itself. First part, what does blessed mean? Second part, why Sorry, second part, who are the people who are called blessed? And third part, why are they called blessed? And I promise that by the end, we'll see what all this has to do with monkeys. So uh, the first part of the formula is the same for all of the Beatitudes, and it's this opening phrase, blessed are, dot, dot, dot. So we start with the question, what does blessed mean? Last Sunday, that was the very first question you asked. Taylor delivered the whole Sermon on the Mount, and Karen put up her hand and asked, What does blessed mean? And that was just a great question. It was perfect. That is the first question of this sermon. And Taylor did a great job answering it. And so did Fumi just now. But I want to talk about it too. Um, Because this is such an important word, it takes some real explaining. And the reason it's so difficult for us is because our English language really lets us down here big time. So as Fumi said, the Greek word is makarios. And the truth is, we just don't have an English word that even begins to translate makarios. There's no word. And so we just use blessed, and it's really a very poor choice, because blessed means something else. We're repurposing another word when both Greek and Hebrew have two different words. So the Greek word eulogeo means to bless. That's the word that Greek uses when God promises to bless Abraham or when priests bless the people. And blessing is a relational transaction. One person decides to speak a good word, eulogeo, over another person. And that might be completely undeserved. It might be based totally on love and grace. That's eulogeo. And it has no relation whatever to makarios. None at all. They're totally different words. So as we try to understand the word makarios, all the ideas that we have in our heads about blessing are just unhelpful baggage. So instead, we're going to look at how the Bible defines the word. Um, So turn back in your Bibles to Psalm 1. Psalm 1, uh, page 448. And we're going to look at the very beginning of the very first psalm. So we just saw that the very first word of the very first sermon of Jesus, the first of five sermons, was the word blessed. And now here, at the beginning of the Psalter, we find that the very first word of the very first psalm, the the first of the book of five books of psalms, is the same word. 
It's the word blessed. And it's exactly the same word, right? So the Greek word makarios has an exact equivalent in Hebrew, the word asher. When Hebrew says asher, Greek says makarios. They're basically identical. English clumsily says blessed both times. At least it's consistent. So Psalm 1 explains here what asher means and therefore also what makarios means. It explains it with the beautiful picture that begins in verse 3. A share, it says, is like a tree planted by streams of water that yields its fruit in its season and its leaf does not wither. In all that he does, he prospers. So it's very like Fumi's image of the flower. Okay, so let's attempt to define Makarios. Draw a circle in your head, an imaginary circle, which is the full definition of the word Makarios. Um, And we can put inside that circle the complete circle of our English word happy. Everything that we mean by happy is contained within makarios, but happy is completely swallowed up by makarios. It's dwarfed by it. Happy is shallow and superficial and temporary. Our English word happy derives from the old English word hap that means luck. It's like in mishap or happenstance. What we mean by happy isn't even a quarter of what the Greeks meant by makarios. So in order to fill out some of that blank space in Makarios around happy, we'd need to add words like rooted, established, secure, permanent, provided for, satisfied, prosperous, fruitful, and joyful. We'd need kind of all those words to talk about Makarios. It's a word that means flourishing, as Taylor said last week. It means infused with delight in every fiber of its being. So makarios, then, is a big word. It's a fabulous word. And in the whole Old Testament, its Hebrew equivalent, esher, is used quite sparingly. It's used 45 times. Three quarters of them are in Psalms and Proverbs. Moses used it once in Deuteronomy. And the rest of them are on the lips of Job, Solomon in Ecclesiastes, Isaiah, Daniel, and the Queen of Sheba. She used it four times. So as we look at that pattern, we see that it's a word that belongs almost exclusively to the wisdom literature, the Hebrew wisdom literature, not to the Torah, not to the prophets, but to the wisdom literature. Hebrew wisdom, we remember from our series on Proverbs, was kind of like a combination of modern philosophy and natural science. And Hebrew wisdom asked the big questions of life. What is the world really like? And what is the most successful way to live in the world as God made it? And the answers it comes up with applies to every human being. It's not just religious people. Um, And so a share in Hebrew wisdom was the pinnacle of success in the world. The best way to flourish, the most enviable person, the one who's really nailed living. So if you're a philosopher in the congregation, it's the equivalent of Aristotle's eudaimonia. It's the equivalent of everything the Greeks meant by the good life. So it's a word that's not particularly based in religious language. Not, not in any ritual way of approaching God, although, of course, in Hebrew wisdom, God is essential to it, but it's more of just a natural law of the world as it really is. All right, you've heard it three times now from all three of us. Do you have a good grasp of the word blessing now? I hope we do, because it's really critical to the whole Sermon on the Mount. Makarios, blessed, is the fullness of human flourishing and delight. And uh, if you want a slightly better English word for it, one that derives from the same root is the word bliss, bliss, happy. Much better than blessed, I think.
All right, so let's move on to the second part of the formula. The people that Jesus described as blessed as Makarios. And here's his list. The poor in spirit, the mourners, the meek, the hungry, the merciful, the pure in heart, the peacemakers, and the persecuted. These are the people Jesus says are truly living the good life. And we ought to find this alarming. If we've understood Makarios properly, then this is completely outrageous. It's nothing short of revolutionary. Because when we put that image in our head of a tree planted by streams of living water bearing fruit in its season, that image has nothing to do with someone who's mourning, does it? It looks nothing like someone who's persecuted or hungry or poor. And why should it be meek? Those words are pretty much the total opposite of everything we have in our heads when we think about someone who's flourishing. But since we know Jesus is the Son of God and we know he's wiser than we are, we need to wrestle with this. We should at least consider that he might be right about this. And that would make us very wrong. Because in America, the closest thing our own culture has to Aristotle's eudaimonia, or the good life, is probably what we would call the American dream. And the American dream is based on becoming rich, settling down, prospering in business, buying a house with a white picket fence, being independent and secure, well-fed and satisfied, respected, untroubled by conflict, and free in every way, including now sexually free, to sleep with whomever I want, whenever I choose. And our culture has told us since we were born that this is the good life, that this is the path to happiness. And when we see someone who has these things, we look on that person with envy. In other words, we don't believe Jesus. We profoundly disagree with Jesus. Most modern Westerners nod their heads and say they love the Beatitudes while believing and living the total opposite of what they say. So let's go through Jesus' happy people one by one and see this in more detail. First, verse 3, the poor in spirit. In Luke's gospel, Jesus just says the poor, and he contrasts them directly with the rich. Matthew calls them the poor in spirit, but surely that means more than materially poor and not less. It means that I am needy to the core of my being. I am dependent I cannot fend for myself in any way. It's the total opposite of the American dreams, rich, secure, independent people who need nothing from anyone. Second verse 4, those who mourn, people who weep, who can't stop crying, who can't pull it together and be professional. The truth is that tears are good and right because our tears tell the story that something mattered that we opened up our hearts to love. And our grief is love that was left unexpressed when death came. But our culture finds it embarrassing, and it wants to hurry people past grief and back to smiles again. Third, verse 5, the meek. The meek are not respected. They have no followers on social media. They speak, and no one listens. They ache, and no one cares. They are the invisible, ordinary, mediocre, unimpressive people who make little mark on this world, and the American dream despises them. 
Fourth, verse 6, those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. Again, Luke's gospel just says hungry, and Matthew adds for righteousness. But that says more and not less. Physical hunger feels terrible, but it can be fixed with a hamburger. What about that same ravenous hunger, that agony and suffering to be filled up with something we cannot reach and will never reach? Happy is the person who lives with that sense of permanent and incurable need. Fifth, verse 7, the merciful. Mercy gives when it doesn't have to. And it takes the cost upon itself in forgiveness or in financial debt. The mercy giver is always impoverished by the transaction. It takes the hit for the sake of the other person. And those who accomplish the American dream of personal wealth and power never do so by being merciful. Sixth, verse 8, the pure in heart. That means an undivided heart that loves God first without rivals. It has dispensed with idols. And that, of course, includes sexual purity, which is where it parts ways with the new American ideal of total sexual freedom. Seventh, verse 9, the peacemakers. That might sound romantic, but real peacemaking is stressful. It's tiresome. It's costly. It involves wading into conflict you'd rather avoid. It requires treating everyone's needs and opinions as valid and ignoring or treading down no one. Peacemakers give up their own peace to patiently broker a compromise that nobody likes but everyone can live with. And they are left in the end as nobody's hero. The opposite approach to peacemaking is tribalism. And that promotes my group's preferences at the expense of yours by hating you and denying your humanity. And although the tribalist approach is not explicit in the American dream, it has, in truth and in practice, been its foundation from the beginning. And eighth, verse 10, those who are persecuted for the sake of righteousness. Persecution is, of course, the opposite of likes on social media, the opposite of being publicly honored and celebrated. Your culture hates you enough to kill you. That's no one's idea of the American dream. So I hope you can see then that Jesus is speaking here like a revolutionary. Here he lays out the eight pillars of philosophical truth on which our culture is built. And here he takes a cannon to blast them to bits one by one. To decimate them and show each, in each case that the total opposite is true. He says frankly and unabashedly that your cultural dream is garbage. It's a lie. It's freakish nightmare. There's no wisdom to your philosophy. It is whole grain organic foolishness. It doesn't work. It's never worked. Not for anyone at any time. Your celebrities and cultural heroes are miserable people who live ruined lives. And yet each new child born to your land is once again indoctrinated into the same worthless, bankrupt philosophy of death. When are you going to wake up and try something new? Try something that's been proven to actually work An old way that lies right here before us that is profoundly different. So we need to see the gravity of these words. Jesus went up on the mountain like a new Moses, teaching his disciples the Torah of God with authority. He also sounds like a new David, beginning his sermon like the Psalms with the word blessed. And he sounds like a new Solomon 
pouring forth wisdom from heaven to give his people understanding of the world as it truly is. But Jesus' wisdom is very unlike Old Testament wisdom. It's a much higher level. Nothing in Hebrew wisdom prepares us for this. The edgiest thing that Hebrew wisdom said is, blessed is the one who has concern for the poor. Let alone blessed are the poor. So it might take us some work to understand why this wisdom is wisdom, not craziness. And the third part of the formula tells us why all these downcast people are actually the happy ones. Why are they actually the ones living the good life? And Jesus gives us the reasons. Because theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Because they'll be comforted. Because they'll inherit the earth. Because they'll be satisfied. Because they'll receive mercy. Because they'll see God. And because they'll be called sons of God. What we see in every case is the reason that they're, the people living the good life is because God himself will come to them and solve their problems. So the answer is, they're going to be happy because God is going to make them happy. Now, there's an appropriateness to how each reward corresponds to the people who receive it. So those who mourn are comforted, and those who are hungry are satisfied. Each group on the list gets exactly the thing that solves their problem. But on the other hand, it's also evident that these rewards are a package deal. It's not eight different solutions to eight different problems, but instead it's one great big solution that solves all the problems at once. God himself arrives and cures all harms with himself. But the part of it that will most appeal to the mourners is the comfort part. And the part that most appeals to the pure of heart is that they get to see God and so on. So what this suggests is that the reason that these people are truly happy is the same in every case. It's because they are receiving from God the one thing that they most wanted in all the world. Even if that's not the same thing for all of them. So what we see is that God is completely able to satisfy whatever craving they came to him with, and thereby completely able to fill up their hearts with joy. And if we trace that logic back, then that means that their very their need or their suffering, however painful it was at the time, actually did them good. It was an objective good. Because if their reason for finding true happiness was God's ability to meet their need, then the very depth of the need itself helped them to find that joy. The need was a gift. The problem itself was a blessing. So it's by this logic that Jesus can speak the apparently paradoxical statement, blessed are those who mourn. Or happy are the sad people. It works because their sadness enabled them to receive God's joy. It left them better off in the end than the people who had no mourning. No one has to try to be poor or hungry or meek or mourning. That's just humanity in its natural fallen state. Jesus isn't telling people here to seek hardship. He's just telling them to stop solving it yourself. In our efforts to avoid these hard things, we usually end up comforting ourselves with false ideas or worldly goods, which then quickly turn into idols. They don't work well enough to make us happy, but they work just well enough to stop us being hungry. And that robs us of the comfort God would give us that actually works. 
So the idols in our hands rob us twice. And the Makarios blessing of Jesus is for the naturally downcast people who have refused to try to solve it themselves or been unable to solve it themselves. Instead, they've had to or chosen to wait for God to solve their problem for them. Jesus comforts and assures them, you chose well. God will surely do it. So next we ask, how long do we have to wait? Uh, Jesus' promises in the Beatitudes a present reality or a future hope? And the answer is yes. <laughs> Both. Uh, every one of them has been partially fulfilled already and delivered in part to Christians already. But every one of them also has more to come in the future. So the letters of the New Testament talk about every one of these promises in the Beatitudes as having been already accomplished in the lives of believers. I could show you all eight of them, but we're just going to do the first few. So theirs is the kingdom of heaven is in Colossians 1 verse 13. It says he has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us, past tense, to the kingdom of his beloved son. So ours is the kingdom of heaven now. They shall be comforted, is in 2 Corinthians 1, verse 4. Paul says, we are able to comfort those who are in any affliction with the comfort with which we ourselves are comforted by God. Ongoing present tense. They shall be called sons of God, is in Galatians 3, verse 26. It says, for in Christ Jesus, you are all sons of God through faith. Present tense. So, you can look up the rest of those for yourselves. All eight of them are in there in the New Testament. We have these promises now. The acts of God that solve our problems and meet our deepest needs are all ours in Christ already. At least in part. But enough to get excited about. <laughs> I'm glad for him. And there's also still more to come for every one of them because the book of Revelation completes all eight as well. When our comfort becomes the removal of every tear, when our inheritance in the earth is fully realized, when we see God face to face and not just through the eye of faith, and when our poverty and our hunger is filled up with a bounteous feast in a golden city, then will the Beatitudes be complete. So the happiness of the downtrodden people, Jesus says, is based on what God has done already and on what he's about to do. But for both reasons, the happiness itself is a present reality, not just a future one. He says, blessed are those who mourn, not blessed will be. We see that demonstrated time and time again in the Gospels and in the book of Acts. The crowd who followed Jesus... That crowd, were they the rich or the poor? Were they the healthy or the sick? Were they the prominent or the marginalized? The followers of Jesus while he was on earth were overwhelmingly the poor, the sick, and the marginalized. Not exclusively, but overwhelmingly. And of course they were. Those were the people who were hungry for God. The rich and the healthy and the prominent already had everything they wanted, everything they thought they needed. They had sorted themselves out, thank you very much. They saw no need for what Jesus had to offer. So riches made people blind. But poverty opened their eyes to the truth. And the same is generally true today. And when those poor people met Jesus, what was their response? It was joy, of course, every time. Leaping and dancing and praising God, even though heaven wasn't here yet. They had the foretaste promised in the Beatitudes, and they were filled with gladness, just as Jesus said. 
far more than those miserable Pharisees with their religious stranglehold or miserable Herod, Herod in his palace surrounded by the graves of his family members or miserable Pilate with his conflicted conscience. Wealth and power didn't make any of them happy. But Jesus made lame men dance. And he ought to be leading a train of happy followers still today. There's only one person in the Gospels who met Jesus and went away sad. Remember who that was? The rich young ruler who wouldn't give up his fortune. The text says he went away sad because he had great wealth. So not only can money not make you happy, it actively makes you sad. And this guy lost out big time because he would not let it go. And this finally brings us back to the monkeys. So as Fumi said, the Beatitudes aren't commands. Jesus isn't saying go and be mournful, go and be persecuted. Instead, the Beatitudes are wisdom statements. They describe the world as it truly is and the way it truly works. And given those facts, there's then a sensible and a foolish way to live. The foolish way is to hang on to the old way of doing life, to try to solve our own problems. Loving and accumulating money, trying to be self-sufficient and independent, protecting ourselves from mourning by never opening our hearts to love. Making our own rules and heaping impure stains on our heart and conscience and leaving the suffering of the world to be someone else's problem. We can hang on to those things and we will be for our whole lives the monkey with his hand around the ball in the box. Prisoners of our own grasp and waiting for the hunters to come back and put us in a cage forever. Or there's a wise way to respond if we trust these revolutionary words of Jesus. And that is to lay down that old way as so much worthless rubbish in order to seek first his kingdom and wait for God to heal us. And if we have truly done that, if we have met Jesus then there will have been joy in our hearts already. We will have tasted Makarios. If we are doing life his way, however hard things might be now, however much mourning or hunger or persecution we might be facing, there will still be joy in it because Jesus said there would. So the challenge today is that if our lives lack joy, If we've lost all trace of that joy, we should start by asking ourselves the question, what have I seized hold of instead? What false worldly thing am I holding on to that keeps me stuck in this box, grasping a solution that doesn't work and robbing me of the one that does? What would it look like for me to let go of this thing in my hand and leave myself open to God's solution in my life? Would my God be capable of making me truly happy if I let him? So let's go now to our Lord Jesus in a moment of silent prayer and ask him those questions.